and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in this crazy world, how things are right now. This is Harrison Smith back with another episode of Cinema, and uh, which is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. I had some great feedback to the last couple episodes that I posted uh, saying it's nice to see me step outside the box a little bit and not just talk about film all the time, but other avenues, whether it was the Atari 2600 game episode of Pac-Man or TV's uh, 90 Day Fiance and reality show Garbage that I also did a, a terrific episode on that a lot of people really seem to enjoy. So on this time around, especially we could all use uh, some good news. I thought I would take a look at the 1980 comedy Popeye starring Robin Williams because in this case, this might be the first episode of cinema where I feel that this film is not cinema and I'm doing a piece on it. Netflix is presently streaming Popeye right now and at least on, on the US Netflix. I've maintained for a number of years that I feel that Popeye is perhaps Robin Williams' best movie. And I know that's that's a big argument. A lot of people can take umbrage with that and, and contest me. But the reason why I picked this is, is because I didn't say it was his funniest. But what I am saying is, I think it is the film that probably, in my opinion, best utilized all of his talents and came the closest to truly harnessing the energy that was Robin Williams. That I really feel that Hollywood never knew what to do with this guy. Uh, he was just such an unbridled chain of energy that it was hard to capture him and put him in a bottle. And that's why so many of his films were hit or miss. And I think because the dramatic pieces that he did tamed him and made him manageable, which is why many of them were his biggest critical and, and commercial successes. So a, a few myths need to be dispelled about the 1980 Robin Williams film. So number one, it was not a box office failure. It was made for $20 million and it grossed well over $60 million. It was a team effort between Paramount and, believe it or not, Disney. And while it was deemed a disappointment by Paramount Pictures, it hardly failed. Number two, it is not Robin Williams' worst film. I will argue again that it's his best. Like Williams and its director, Popeye's director Robert Altman, the film paid a price for breaking away from formula. Popeye is art. Popeye fought cinema and lost the first few battles, but I think it won the war. It was Robin Williams' first movie, and it almost was his last. It's been called a mess, incomprehensible, a misfire, a disaster, and a bomb. I've heard some critics say that there isn't even really a screenplay. It's just one endless sketch after another of very quirky characters. And you know what? Some of that is absolutely true. But bear with me as I show how this unique film stands up against my concept of cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. And I'll also lay out how this film reflects the present attitudes between industry and audience. Years after I declared Popeye as Williams' best film, Vanity Fair published a piece that supported my claim, and I will provide that link in my show notes. The first place we have to look at in Popeye is, believe it or not, not Robin Williams, 
but the film's director, Robert Altman. And from the start, Robert Altman's directing career was in TV, and he was known for putting the independent in independent filmmaking. His stars either loved or despised him. Robin Williams almost quit Popeye several times because of conflicts with Altman. And Altman embraced a naturalistic style to film and, and the acting method, and not all that different from Williams's chaos theory style of comedy. Both men were very independent in how they did their things. And, and again, the studio system really didn't know how to handle both of them. They didn't play to formula. And eventually, Robert Altman is going to come out of his Hollywood exile and make a terrific film about Hollywood called The Player with Timothy Robbins, which, if you have not seen it, I highly recommend after listening to this podcast. Robert Altman often clashed with producers and studios and actors, and, and he faced mutiny on perhaps his best-known and commercially successful film, M.A.S.H. A lot of people don't know that. Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland actually lobbied to have Altman fired from the set. They opposed his freestyle approach to acting, allowing the actor to take responsibility for the development of their character. Altman had a number of patron saints. Uh, these were, you know, industry people and, and wealthy people who wanted to see him deliver another commercial success after MASH. A fellow director, Robert Dornhelm, once said the following of Altman in describing Altman's reaction to distributor interference in the editing process of his film Shortcuts. And, and Dornelm said this, he said, Bob just thought the Antichrist was trying to destroy his art. They were well-meaning people who wanted him to get what he deserved, which was a big commercial hit. But when it came down to the art or the money, Robert was always with the art. While you really don't see a lot of this today, or, or most of all directors like this seeing widespread commercial success, with Altman, we had a director who stood for the artistic process with a thinly veiled contempt for the industry that he fed and which in turn fed him. It appears that Altman cared very little for financial success and wanted art to trump commercial appeal. He was an anomaly in Hollywood. His characters were imperfect, their dialogue overlapped in dizzying rapid-fire volleys. Altman's directorial style let a film unfold as it may, not according to the structure of the three-act formula and, and a script hitting all of the proper beats. Robert favored character motivation and intricate relationships over detailed plots. And folks, this is why Popeye succeeds. That's a brief overview of, of Robert Altman, but really we, we have to look at Robin Williams. So if you can remember all the way back to the, the mid-70s, I mean, Williams was burning through stand-up midways for some time before he was unleashed as, as a guest star on the hit 70s sitcom Happy Days. He played Mork for Mork, the alien, and he was a fast-talking space alien who appeared in, in the latter years of Happy Days after it famously and, and literally jumped the shark. So Happy Days was in that uh, uh, three-camera setup kind of thing with a live studio audience. And if you remember how Happy Days originally was, it was shot on film and without a studio audience and had a much more realistic tone to it. That's, of course, where Richie's uh, mysterious brother Chuck had been and then just vanished when the show migrated over to a live studio audience. It became definitely a sitcom and fit that sitcom formula. And that's where Williams came in. He eclipsed his famous co-stars and he stole the show. I remember watching it the night that Williams was on and I thought, wow, this guy is really funny. I was a kid, but I was absolutely delighted by Williams's Mork for Mork. It, it was not the typical space alien thing you were expecting. 
And it wasn't long before ABC was setting up a spinoff and it was commissioned as Mork and Mindy and that was added to the ABC lineup and it became a monster hit. Williams was a dispensary of catchphrases and overnight American teens aped his shtick. I mean, fellow stand-up comedians pattered his, his shotgun style. I, I remember Williams on The Tonight Show one night with Johnny Carson and Carson desperately trying to keep up with him. It was a telling moment between the old comic guard and this new wild upstart. Carson was out of his depth. I remember thinking while I was watching it, Johnny, just shut up and let this guy go. Not only couldn't Carson keep up with Williams, he was exposed as a scripted comic trying too hard to earn a seat at the cool kid lunch table. If you can find that footage, it's, it's very telling and it shows Carson should have just sat this guy down and just let him go. But I remember going to, to school, I was in elementary school at the time, I think I was in like fifth grade, somewhere there, when uh, Mork and Mindy debuted. And I mean, overnight it was, you know, Shazbot and Nanu Nanu and, and all that stuff and people doing the Star Trek-like uh, greeting with, with this, you know, uh, severed fingers, with the split fingers. And it, it was just all over the place. And, and the um, rainbow suspenders, I mean, even Jerry Seinfeld uh, spoofed that in one of his episodes as well, too, when he went out on stage to deliberately crash and burn and he donned uh, the Williams trademark uh, rainbow suspenders. So it says a lot in the impact on Robin Williams. But I remember thinking even as a kid that Mork and Mindy was a very odd vehicle for this guy. I mean, uh, pairing him up with Pam Dauber and all that, I, I get it. You know, he's in Colorado and he's living in this, you know, very 70s kind of almost Mary Tyler Moore, you know, loft, studio loft apartment it, 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 I guess, you know, it really what you tuned in for was Robin Williams. You really didn't care much about the other characters. And Dauber, you know, was just his foil is, is all it really was. I remember thinking that, you know, after watching it for a number of episodes, it, it kind of just became the same old thing. It wasn't like it kept addicting me that I had to tune in. And I forget what night it was on. It was either a Tuesday or a Thursday, if I remember correctly. But I do remember as a boy thinking, eh, Okay, like he's funny, but sometimes I felt that Robin Williams was the guy at your office party that every year puts the lampshade on and is in your face. And, uh, you know, the first year it's pretty funny, but by the second, third and fourth years, it just becomes downright irritating. And that's how I felt with Williams sometimes. However, in his stand-up, again, I found that by the end of his stand-up routines, I was exhausted watching him and and he definitely showed he was exhausted he was he was sweating profusely uh, up there on those stages but again a very funny man not taking away anything from his talent but i can see why hollywood had such trouble pigeonholing him so i i stand by my theory that the hollywood never knew what to do with williams and mork and mindy was a paycheck it was a mediocre sitcom that existed only to showcase williams it was the best way to take this very dangerous comic and package him to a very family-oriented type of sitcom for abc and mainstream that's how i felt it was like one of the first attempts to leash robin williams that sitcom was a safe delivery system for american viewers who could experience williams comfortably and avoid his wild, drug-fueled stand-up routines that made must-see cable TV. Williams was X-rated for anyone over 15. Later on, though, films like RV, 
the survivors, Flubber, Old Dogs, Hook. Yep, I'm saying Hook. And even Mrs. Doubtfire were, were bland, safe commercial pieces and, and consequently the kind that Williams railed against. While Patch Adams meant well, it's a saccharine excuse to showcase Williams with a heart of gold. And Dead Poets Society had a walk to a different tune message, but again, it made Williams safe. However, when NBC's Michael Scott from The Office believes that Dead Poets Society is the height of inspiration, like in that one episode where he goes to Ryan's business class, well, then you see what I mean. These films were paychecks and what the actor is most known for. It was no secret he was saddened at the prospect of a Mrs. Doubtfire sequel before his death. He had no respect for that material. That also gave him one of his biggest hits. So Williams also was frustrated with his career and the type of projects he was doing. Uh, The word has it too that while he tolerated the Night at the Museum films, they were paychecks. It wasn't like they were really stretching his comedic or, or dramatic talent whatsoever. He did them because they helped keep the lights on. In many ways, Williams was Altman's artistic doppelganger. I mean, both needed commercial success, yet they resented it. Both wanted the ability to explore the artistry of film and push the medium in their own ways. They found themselves pushing back against the industry and audience expectation. Williams achieved awards and nominations for Awakenings, The Fisher King, and Good Morning Vietnam, Good Will Hunting, but he always seemed to be searching for something else. Films like Baron Munchausen or or uncredited inspired cameos like in Shakes the Clown, which I absolutely loved his cameo in Shakes the Clown, another underrated comedic film. He explored serious takes in Moscow on the Hudson, one hour photo and an insomnia. But again, Hollywood had no idea how to package Robin Williams. When it came time to make his first film, and breaking the confines of of a mediocre and and really in the end a dull sitcom, Williams chose Popeye. I remember a stand-up comedy routine he was doing one time not long after Popeye came out. I think it was one of his first HBO specials after the release of the film. And I remember right in the middle of this one set, he was doing something about something not being good, whether it was for the nation or whatever. But he was talking to his son in in this skit and, you know, his imaginary son. And he said, don't you know Popeye wasn't good for anybody? And I remember the audience erupting into applause as he was bashing his own movie. And I remember thinking, because I had seen the film and I'm going, well, what are you bashing your own movie for? It It was actually a really good movie. Dustin Hoffman, just so you know, was vetted for the role of the comic sailor from King Features. And Popeye came from a comic strip called Thimble Theater. But Dustin Hoffman eventually passed. I I guess it was to the age-old creative differences thing. And Williams came to the attention of producer Robert Evans after after Mork and Mindy shot to the top of the TV heap. And Robert Altman was signed, and, and Williams' scattered energy seemed a perfect fit for Altman's loose hand in allowing his actors to, to build their characters. Altman went to work immediately against the studio system. What would or should Popeye be? A musical was a daring movie, but emboldened by the success of Annie, Paramount and Disney teamed up to roll the dice. Here is where Popeye emerges as a true piece of art, and despite its poor critical and popular reception, it roundhouse punched cinema right in the face. Altman assembled his team of rivals, a patchwork of artists not known for mainstream success. Altman was about world building 
and his movie would not be shot on some studio soundstage. Spielberg found success with insisting Jaws be shot on the open Atlantic far from the pools, tanks, and executives of Universal Studios in California. That's why he shot it all the way on the East Coast off of Martha's Vineyard. Altman was about to take this a step further. Fringe cartoonist, playwright, and screenwriter Jules Pfeiffer was selected to write the script. Mainstream success hit Pfeiffer with his unproduced play Carnal Knowledge when it was adapted to the screen with Mike Nichols directing that. This led to the job of being Popeye's screenwriter. And if you do watch the film on Netflix or just pick it up anywhere, Popeye's script is not so much a three-act screenplay than it is a character study. It seems almost everyone has something to say and contributes to this Baroque world. The film opens with an odd assortment of townsfolk breaking into a dour anthem. The soundtrack and songs are going to be discussed in a little bit. The characters seep from the woodwork between the buildings and into view in those opening scenes. The first five minutes show that Popeye was not going to be the Disney-type family musical. Mary Poppins, it ain't. The opening is not some show-stopping tune. Instead, Altman brings us into the world. And we have no idea where this is or even a time frame. Is it World War II? Is it the 1930s? Is it modern day in a town that that time just forgot? We have no idea. And that's just what Altman wanted. Watch the opening and see the film release its characters. It doesn't introduce, it releases them. They filter in, dotting the streets and layering into the set. We are seeing something special. And I knew this while watching it in the theater back in 1981. Many of the extras were not professional actors, but rather circus and vaudeville performers. Watch the performer chasing his hat in the old slapstick routine. He's, he's kicking it and then running after it, kicking it and running after it. The mayor and his wife are all regal and they strut pompously while Altman staple Paul Dooley plays Wimpy in Hamburger Bliss. He just is introduced by walking down toward the camera holding a hamburger in his hand, looking at it like he's in love with it. Folks, this is movie magic. So let's look at world building here in, in this world of Popeye. Altman ordered the construction of an entire town for this film, and he built it halfway across the world on the island of Malta. So he trumped Steven Spielberg in distance from Hollywood. He went halfway across the world off the coast of Italy to Malta to build his set. And it was done under the art design of Wolf Kroger. And the town is called Sweet Haven. And it's a collection of these odd angles and sagging rooftops and drab buildings clinging to the Maltese cliffside. This was not a set. It was a living, breathing town. And believe it or not, it is still used today as a popular tourist attraction called Popeye Village. You can go there. This constructed town of Sweet Haven was assembled with imported lumber each building handcrafted for its own unique look. The White Cliffs were Altman's canvas, and he took care to populate these buildings with people who fit their unique character. This is true love and passion for filmmaking. Today, we can imagine how this would go. Most of the town today would be a CGI rendering with actors walking around in front of green screens and, and existing structures on a lot. However, this film would not be made today. No studio would take such a creative risk, and many look with scorn on Paramount's folly over 30 years ago. So the movie still gets a lot of shit. 
There's a great song in Popeye called Everything is Food. And it's not meant to be polished. It's not meant to be a slick tune. None of the songs are. It's the breath of a town that has so little to look forward to that food is one of the few basic enjoyments they all share as a community. I wish for copyright reasons, I I can't share the tune on here. But go online and just type in Popeye, everything is food, and watch it. No, it's not slick. No, it's not MTV worthy. It's not polished Grammy stuff. It's meant to be quirky, odd, off key, and off pitch. Altman allows this song to unfold slowly, fitting each scene with a unique character while Captain Bluto, Popeye's nemesis, observes with a gluttonous eye from above. All Bluto is doing is chewing on this big piece of meat. Slapstick, physical hijinks all happen in a quiet mania orbiting around Williams's Popeye as all he tries to do is find a quiet place to enjoy a hamburger. E.C. Seeger's Popeye has been a long renowned figure across the world. His crusty image, swollen forearms, and spinach addiction made it almost impossible for a real life translation. You can see some of these new like CGI uh, photo renditions, like a, a true version of Popeye with a real human being, and they're kind of grotesque and, and almost monstrous looking, but in the cartoon it works. So how are they going to turn this very abstract comic character into, you know, a real person with a real person depicting him? It could never measure up, but Williams did it. Williams inhabits the character of Popeye. We feel for him. He's surrounded by a confederacy of dunces looking for his father and respectful of the people around him. He possesses a quiet dignity and humility. We really like Popeye. He's a good guy. He's a simple man, and the cafe scene shows us exactly who he is and how Williams had a role that utilized every aspect of his talents. It's here where Williams can be subtle, and yet he dominates the screen without his manic persona that we've seen at that point all on his HBO specials and stage stand-ups. I was in eighth grade when we went to see this movie at our mall, and it was in the biggest movie house up there. I think it had close to three, four hundred people in it. And look, it was customary to see a big film with a group of your friends. And when you really start to break that down too, it's kind of weird to go see a movie with all your friends because you really all can't sit together. I mean, nine times out of 10, if it's a big you know, movie, you end up broken up and split up anyway. And then afterwards, you just compare notes on the movie and you really can't talk during it because then you're not enjoying the movie and you're pissing off people around you. But it was still cool to go with your friends, go see this movie. Well, I rallied up a bunch of my friends, they were all guys, uh, to go see Popeye. And, and because mostly, we you knew it was Robin Williams, and Robin Williams had a lot of fans among my guy friends, so we all thought this was going to be a wild ride. I was the only one out of the six kids who liked this movie. And I listened to people grumbling as the full house emptied at when we were walking out and When I declared my enjoyment of the movie on the way home, I might as well have been beaten down. I mean, I got a lot of flack for it. How could you like that? It was boring. It was stupid. It didn't make sense. It was, again, boring. That was the number one word. Yet for all the complaints, the audience seemed quite entertained while the movie was playing. I mean, I will say that. Lots of laughter, applause, and especially at the end when Williams breaks into I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. There was a moment that stood out. And that was when Shelley Duvall made her entrance as Olive Oil. When we were sitting in that theater, 
Those big boots clomped all horse-like down the steps and the camera raised up to reveal Duval. And there was a collective, I'm not kidding you, there was a collective gasp from the sold out house. People were like, she was olive oil. By God, this woman was Popeye's beanpole girlfriend. She had completely made the transformation. And here's the best part. Without any CGI or prosthetic makeup effects, Shelley Duvall was born to play this role. I never heard such exasperation from an audience again until 1986 when James Cameron revealed the majesty of the Queen Alien in Aliens. And then over 20 years later when the T-Rex busted out of its jail in the original Jurassic Park. I mean, I gotta say about that CGI and all, when that T-Rex broke out of its pen in Jurassic Park, I turned to the person I was with in the theater and I didn't say, how did they do that? I said, where'd they get one? That's how realistic and still how realistic that thing looks. However, Duvall was a living special effect. And that gasp from that audience said only one thing. How the hell did they do that? When you ask most people who saw the film back in the day, back in 1980, the number one gripe is something like, it wasn't what I expected. So what does that mean? This was a time before comic books hijacked cinema. Were they expecting a more consumer film? I mean, Popeye didn't really beat up enough people, did he? Was that it? It was boring. Like I said, that's what I heard on the way home. The detractors were right about one thing. It was not what anyone expected. I'm sure Paramount and Disney were popping in acids after an executive screening. The biggest film of the Christmas season was going to be a big fat turkey. And they had to think fast to ensure they broke even. Altman allows the relationship between Olive and Popeye to truly take shape. The dinner table scene where Popeye is subjected to a dialogue smorgasbord is classic Altman. You have to see the scene. You can find it on YouTube if you don't want to watch the full movie. But I'm telling you, when you watch this, it is masterfully directed, written, and most of all, edited. And I think even writing-wise... I think you can tell a lot of it is Altman just looking at his his actors and saying, okay, you know these characters, make this work. We're just going to run the cameras. Characters talk over one another. Mr. Giesel professes his hatred for Wimpy. Wimpy dispenses marriage advice to Olive. Olive bitches over glasses and knives and people picking on her fiancé, Bluto. Nana Oil flits in and out with Daffy surprise while her husband Cole demands apologies and gives his son Castor a few attaboys for putting his sister in place. There are at least four different conversations going on in this scene full force. And in the middle of it all, Popeye never gets a bite to eat. Williams hardly utters a word, his face and body doing all the heavy lifting. And the final result is just beautiful. Williams was at his height in this film, and he didn't even know it. We often hear great dialogue, if you're listening for it, off screen or just under breath. When the short, rotund mayor walks Mutt and Jeff style with his towering wife to Olive's very prestigious engagement party, he timidly reminds his wife, Remember, my dear, tonight it's my turn to be tall. Another off-screen exchange between some unseen couple as the town settles in for the night. You hear this dialogue, don't forget to put the cat out, dear. That's his nasal wife and she's nagging her husband. And the husband replies, we don't have a cat. Williams and his ability to ad-lib were harnessed properly. 
Popeye was known for his under-the-breath mutterings. When Olive jumps into his arms, frightened, we hear him mutter, shouldn't we have dinner first? He later reads a note pinned to the abandoned infant Sweepy. The baby blabbered something that sounded like baby while Williams read the note. He fires right back, you're a baby. It says so right here, allowing Williams to ad-lib, which was one of his trademarks. When Nana Oil exclaims absent-minded over something, Williams looks at the mailbox, which has oil, O-Y-L, printed on it. Oily grumbles. That explains it. She's down a court. The moments go on throughout the entire film. You have to work for these nuggets of genius. You have to listen. And the only way to do this is to surrender yourself to the film. Let it in and experience it. Duvall, in my opinion, was robbed of an Oscar for her channeling of olive oil and not just a nomination. She should have gotten that golden statue. The song He Needs Me is often cited as terrible. Yet Olive was once described in the comics as the terror of the high seas. And by that, high seas means a C note in music. Olive can't sing and Altman preserved this. He could have easily dubbed the song portion to a proper singer. Instead, Duval is allowed to sing her love for Popeye as neighbors close their windows and she dances like a goonie stork. This is love for a character, a director staying true to his screenwriter and allowing full trust to his actress. The only way to appreciate it is to experience it. And that, of course, brings me around fully to the soundtrack. Harry Nilsson, scoring major street credit for Everybody's Talking At Me from the Oscar-winning Midnight Cowboy, was brought in to write the songs. And like Williams and Altman, Nilsson was known for alcohol and drug abuse. He clashed with Altman and left the picture early, leaving Van Dyke Parks to finish out the job. The film's soundtrack was critically savaged, yet the clumsiness of the songs gives the film its soul. This was so anti-Disney. This was not Annie. And audiences didn't get it. They wanted polished. They wanted Big Mac shows stopping tunes. What they got was awkward, bumbling, and in the end, very sweet. Nilsson's song, I Am What I Am, is Popeye's declaration of self. It's this song that pulls all of the strings together. The world that Altman built gets turned inside out, and yet we hardly notice. When we meet the good women of Sweet Haven in the opening of the film, they are socialites. The leader is the mayor's wife, but by the time we get to I Am What I Am, we find they are turning tricks in a casino that doubles as a town's brothel. Altman doesn't make a big deal out of this. He doesn't beat it over our heads. Instead, he lets it up to us to discover it, and he never explains it. Altman allows us to identify with Popeye, who refuses to cave to the temptation of exploiting Sweepy's psychic powers. Wrong is wrong, he says, even if it helps you. He's propositioned by the Sweet Haven wives, now turned whores, who earlier turned their backs and shunned him at Olive's engagement party. He exposes their hypocrisy. The scene is clear. Popeye has a strong moral center. That's it. Again, the world around him is the issue. It's not Popeye. We always know where we stand with Popeye. And that, folks, is the magic of Robin Williams and Robert Altman. Altman delivered a film that ran just under two hours. It is not a film that is all over the place. Follow Popeye and you never get lost. It's Popeye's journey. But unfortunately, audiences needed their hands held. 
Today, audiences now need to be spoon-fed like baby Sweepy and no longer wish to discover or ask questions. They want it all delivered and tied up at the end. Popeye didn't work because audiences didn't understand that it wasn't about watching a film. It was about walking through one and exploring it. Altman invited his audiences to Sweet Haven. Popeye is a handcrafted movie. It was built, constructed, then allowed to be inhabited by beings with souls. It creaks and it rocks and sometimes it even stumbles. It's exactly what Altman wanted. I've heard there is at least another hour of footage missing from this film, some kind of director's cut or at least unused footage. No doubt Altman was forced to bring the film in under two hours. Likely he fought having his film cut. It would be wonderful to find this footage and see a restored print of this film. So what was the final result? The film was released Christmas 1980 and it did reasonably well. But it was deemed and perceived a critical and financial disappointment. It didn't inspire action figures, calendars, or lines at conventions. It wasn't launched at Comic-Con. There were no plans for sequels. And to this day, no plans for a remake, reboot, or bullshit reimagining. Williams went on to trash the film in interviews and stand-up routines. It was clear he wasn't proud of soulless package crap like RV, Toys, Hook, Jumanji, Mrs. Doubtfire, or even his turns in the Night at the Museum films that I mentioned before. They were paychecks, and yet they were some of his most successful films. His second film took a darker comedic tone in the successful The World According to Garp. While Williams complained, his film career is regarded as successful. He returned with great acclaim to stand up at the Met and on Broadway. Popeye didn't damage him, and Williams unfortunately died in 2014. That wasn't the case for Robert Altman. The film took one hell of a critical drubbing. For many in the industry, it was the last straw. If he was going to fight the system, then the system would turn its back on him. Popeye was to enhance his commercial appeal. Its failure, its perceived failure, was seen as auteur's self-sabotage. Altman tried several other pictures. They were all disappointments before finding some success with cable TV in the series Tanner 88. Basically, Altman was exiled from Hollywood, and he would be gone from the majors for at least a decade. And as I said at the start of this podcast, he returned with 1992's hit Hollywood satire, The Player, which gave a huge middle finger to the filmmaking process and big studios destroying the artistic process as a result. He garnered a Best Director nomination and continued to work till his death in, in 2006. Both men leave us with a film that is a perfect storm of will, vision, creativity, and a little insanity. It is deliberately imperfect. Popeye welcomed an audience with open minds and hearts and asked them to enjoy something for the sake of enjoyment. And if that is an anti-cinema, then I don't know what is. This is Harrison Smith. Hopefully you are all healthy and safe wherever you are in the world. And I look forward to talking with you again in my next episode. Take care. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and give a rating and review. Cinema is also available on YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Google Play Music and more. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.